One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analysing the strikes on Odessa, Russia's arms fair, and the Russia-Chinese joint military exercises. We also welcome back our senior tech reporter, Gareth Caulfield, with more information on the cyber war. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 17th of August, day 175. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, Assistant Foreign Editor, Vinny Shireni, Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Durnley, and our Senior Tech Reporter, Gareth Caulfield. I started by asking Dom and Venetia for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everybody. There's been strikes in Odessa overnight, a couple of strikes, a couple of missile attacks that, that uh, the uh, spokesman for Odessa Regional Administration said injured three no other, uh, nobody killed reportedly in that strike. However, it didn't stop a UN chartered grain ship leaving the port yesterday, bound for Africa. Um, other than that, there's been a, a really interesting article or interview in The Guardian today, interview with um, Mikhailo Podlyak, the advisor or one of the advisors to President Zelensky. We're told one of the, the most prominent advisors. And he's saying that he was open and saying that the Ukrainian strategy right now is to go for the logistics supplies, the ammo depots, um, which we suspect. I mean, that's you know, not not meeting strength with strength. That's what they've been doing so far. And, and it's been very successful. So they would they would carry that on. But he said, uh, quote, it's creating chaos within the Russian forces. Uh, he also predicted more attacks to come uh, liking liking Crimea and, and sort of laughably passed off Russia's explanation that, that these were cigarette butts that caused fires in ammo dumps, saying that Russia must be using different physics, which is quite a neat phrase. Um, he said the, the, the Kirsch Bridge, the, the Crimea Bridge, the road and rail bridges to the east of uh, Crimea, linking Crimea to the to mainland Russia there, he said they were an illegal construction, the main gateway of supplying Russian arms, uh, Russian army, in, the Russian army in Crimea, and said such, such objects should be destroyed. So there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not those those bridges will come under attack. I think it, it sounds as if it's largely been a question of range for the HIMARS and other multiple launch rocket systems, but it seems pretty unequivocal there that Ukraine wants to attack that bridge. Um, he was asked about negotiations. And he says there's no, no prospect of meaningful negotiations with Russia until until Russia experiences a defeat on the battlefield. And great quote. He said, Russian ears only open when there's a giant military bat hitting the Russian head. 
unquote. Um, and then finally, he, he uh, more for our sort of domestic audience, really, he praised Britain's role in supplying and uh, uh, supplying weapons and, and sort of pushing on the diplomatic front. And there was a sort of subtle nudge as well for whoever takes over from Boris Johnson that, um, that they, would, they would hope and expect British um, support not to dwindle. And uh, his final quote, he said, uh, you became a giant. It's hard to go back to being a midget. So, you know, kind of... Yeah. Uh, Bit of a double-edged comment there. Uh, but, yeah, you became a giant. It's hard to go back to being a midget. So we hope that whoever wins, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, wins the, uh, the the leadership of Conservative Party and therefore our next Prime Minister uh, doesn't take us back to being a midget. Um, I'll just get a little pause there and then come back later to talk about the international arms fair in Moscow. Thanks very much, Dom. Uh, Venetia, good to have you on. Um, what other updates for us do you have? Yes, there's quite a few bitty updates that um, are good to get into. We've had some more explosions today in Melitopol. That's the occupied city um, in southern Ukraine. There were some explosions earlier this week as well. Um, According to the city's mayor, the city's Ukrainian mayor, he said it was near the Russian command centre's office. Um, So that's quite interesting. More of this sort of suggestion of attacks behind enemy lines. Not clear whether that was caused by a rocket or partisans or um, we're not 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 really sure. Um, On Crimea, Russians have said that they've arrested a six person terrorist cell from a banned Islamist group. Not really sure if this is what how they're trying to smear the Ukrainian attacks against um, against Russia in the occupied territories. Crimea, of course, was taken in 2014, um, internationally uh, annexed, but not internationally recognised. Um, but it seems likely that that perhaps is the narrative that Russia will start to build, um, that it's down to sort of Islamist terrorists. Terrorists is something that Russians and Putin in particular has used as a smear a lot over the years um, when things aren't going well. So you can expect to hear a bit more of that. Um, some other good things to mention. Um, the mayor of Lviv, and we, don't, we haven't been hearing much about Lviv. It's the city over in the west. It's largely seen as very safe. Every now and then there are some explosions there, but there's never really been any damage. It's where a lot of Ukrainian refugees have gone. It's where a lot of humanitarian operations are operating out of. Um, but the mayor posted a video today um, warning in quite stark language that his resident that the residents of the city needed to prepare for a very difficult winter, um, and in this video it shows scenes of Mariupol, and he makes a sort of indirect comparison, saying it's not impossible that these kinds of things can happen here. We need to prepare essentially for an energy blockade, and that it might be difficult, and telling them to start stockpiling firewood and things like that. Um, so just this sense that. Although it's summer now, winter is now fast approaching and Ukraine increasingly knows that it's going to be very difficult. Um, Two more things to quickly mention. Um, We've got uh, Antonio Guterres is visiting Ukraine today. He's going to be meeting um, Vladimir Zelensky and Tayyip Erdogan to discuss the grain deal um, and how well that's been going. And we've also heard from the operator of Ukraine's largest nuclear power plant, in fact, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, about an unprecedented cyber attack on its website. Obviously, this tucks into the ongoing battle for that power plant and Russia has occupied it um, and Ukraine is trying to take it back. But they've been trading blame for shelling around the area, which everyone has said could be incredibly dangerous. Thank you very much, uh, Venetia. Don, can I come back to you? Um, You mentioned earlier you wanted to talk a little bit about this Russian arms fair. Um, Talk us through that. What's been happening? Yeah, so this is the International Military Technical Forum Army 2022, uh, opened yesterday in in Moscow, the eighth 
uh, conference in a, in a row, eighth annual conference, and it's the it's a it's another arms fair, a bit like DSEI that we have here in in London and others around the world. Um, people get together. I mean, this is obviously Russia Russo centric, um, but yeah, big big old demonstrators and, and trying to uh, cut deals and, and what have you. But very interestingly, there's a, there's a good article in Forbes you might want to have a look at that's, that's titled "Russia's Fake Robot Gun Dog," and this is um, a story from the from the technical, the military technical forum, from the arms fair, where there's a, a company called Machine Intellect out of St. Petersburg that have got this robot dog. And they're showing this robot dog sort of cutting about with an RPG-26 rocket launcher on its back. Um, and it's, uh, it's doing all sorts of stuff. And it says it's really accurate. And this is the, the future. I mean, loads of armies are looking at automation now, land, sea, air, subsurface, all the rest of it. Um, so nothing particularly new there. Um, interestingly, I mean, this, this machine is not built by this, this company in St. Petersburg. It's actually a Go One robot made by Unitree, which is a Chinese company. And to be fair, the, the company do say that. They, they call it the M81 and they're, they're selling it, but they do say it comes from China and they're hoping to make a Russian version soon. They're pricing it at a million rubles, which is $16,000 roughly. Uh, interesting because the you could buy it from Unitree, buy it from China uh, for 2700 so it um, it kind of follows a bit of a pattern which we saw Forbes are saying with the Orland 10, the drone, whereby Russian suppliers buying cheap Chinese tech and then just selling on at huge profits to the to the Russian MOD. Uh, and Forbes say that the, the, this robot dog looks less like Russia trying to impress the world with advanced technology and more like Russian defence contractors um, engaging their customary occupation trying to get the military to pay outrageously inflated prices for off-the-shelf technology. So it's, a, it's an interesting little aside into the workings of, um, of the Russian procurement system. I mean, not that our procurement system here in the UK is, uh, is against uh, making huge losses every now and again and buying things at inflated prices, but it's just quite, quite an interesting little story. I mean, President Putin start, started the um, – he opened the conference yesterday – and said, we are ready to offer our allies and partners the most modern types of weapons. The guns, these guns are in demand amongst mili- military professionals all over the world for their reliability, quality, and most importantly, their high efficiency. Mm. Almost all of them have been used many times in real military operations, unquote. Now, I mean, I don't deny that. They probably all have been used in real military operations, and, and we've, seen the, we've seen the results there. And I was you know, big serious for a moment. I was... Um, Asking Ben Wallace about this last week, the British Defence Secretary, about what we've seen of Russian equipment and, and more importantly, what that does to those international partners, particularly India. India is very heavily reliant on, uh, well, not Ryan, but it's, it's bought a lot of stuff, military kit from, um, from Russia. So there's countries around the world that are very heavily invested in Russian systems, processes, equipment, and so on and so forth, who are now seeing that a lot of this stuff isn't working as advertised. There's, Of course, there's a lot more to the employment of military effect than just having the kit. But if you see that kit not working brilliantly or being easily defeated by much cheaper handheld anti-tank, anti-air systems, it's not going to it's not going to um, you know, fill you with confidence. And Ben Wallace was saying, if you've paid billions of dollars for Russian equipment, you might want to take it back to the seller. And he specifically mentioned India. He said, I would not like to be currently sitting in New Delhi wondering why I've got an awful lot of kit that can be defeated by handheld weapons or radios that can be easily jammed, or airplanes that can be shot down by handheld anti-air missiles. And he, he made the point people are going to start asking questions of Russia. He said its products are shown to be duff or dud, he said. Or no, he said biff. He said biff or dud, uh, which sounds like something like a movie, biff or dud's uh, great adventure or what have you. Um, so it's interesting to see 
what happens now when countries see that, that large parts of their stockpile might not work as advertised? I just wonder, is there an opportunity here for Western governments not only to sell sell munitions in the in the international arms industry, but also to court the likes of India and others to to shift to NATO kit, NATO um, processes, uh, bring them sort of into the fold. There's the big sort of geostrategic part to, to, to all this. Uh, and I'm thinking not only against the, the impact that would have on Russia, but but China and emerging nations. So just just an interesting thought on on how how kit and the international arms side of the uh, of equipment can have big geostrategic com- um, considerations. So a couple of quotes there from Ben Wallace. But interesting, if you go and have a look at that, that Forbes article, you'll see some uh, some imagery from the Russian arms fair that's just started yesterday. Thank you very much, uh, Dom. We'll go to Venetia next just to talk about this interesting story about the Jewish exodus from Russia. And then we'll bring in Gareth Caulfield for some more updates from his arena, which is, of course, uh, cyber warfare. So, Venetia, to you first. Yes, so this is a story about how around 20,000 Jews are supposed to have fled Russia since the war began. Um, That's apparently one in eight of the country's population, which was estimated to be around 165,000. We've been hearing these numbers go around for a few weeks now. The ex-chief Moscow rabbi um, gave an interview a couple of weeks ago saying quite similar numbers. He said 30,000, 20,000 of which to Israel and around 10,000 to other countries. Um, It's not clear what exactly is causing this. Um, A lot of Jewish people in Russia are not speaking. Jewish people who have left Russia and gone to Israel are not speaking. Um, The rabbi talked about how there was pressure on the community to support the war um, and that he felt he had to leave. He took himself into exile. He now lives in Israel. Um, That he felt he had to leave because otherwise he wouldn't have been able to speak honestly about his opinions. Um, But of course, it comes, and we ha- I want to say that like, we haven't seen any clear evidence of a sort of spike in anti-Semitic incidents in Russia, but it comes amid an atmosphere of growing repression of anyone who doesn't toe the Russian state line. And of course, the context is is darker. I mean, there are... For Jewish people in the Soviet Union, it was not a happy time. And a lot of Jews in Russia will be wondering if this is the return of that, if we're heading towards a new, even more sort of totalitarian Russian state. Um, so, yeah, it, interesting numbers. It's hard to get behind those numbers for the moment and figure out exactly what's going on. Um, but it's a very it's a very important story to keep an eye on. And it also, I should mention, comes as we're seeing the trial in Moscow of this agency called the Jewish Agency. Now, they work on repatriation of Jews to Israel and deal with sort of emigration issues. And very suddenly, um, a couple of months ago, um, an order came from the Moscow general prosecutor to shut them down. That court case is now going, that trial is now going through the courts and will be resuming on Friday. Um, And it's been a real sticking point in relations between Israel and Russia, which are normally quite friendly. Israel is furious that there might be any suggestion that this agency would be shut down. Um, So, yeah, we'll wait and see what happens with that on Friday. But in the meantime, clearly thousands of people are leaving quietly every month. Well, thank you very much, Finish. I know you have to head back to the foreign desk, but thank you so much for your time today. Um, just before we bring in Gareth Francis, I know you had some thoughts on this story. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, just to build on something that Venetia was saying there um, in relation to this um, exodus of Jewish people from Russia, I- I'd like to posit two motivations to see wh- why I believe this is going on from 
from reading and also just from my own sort of understanding of, 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 of Russian domestic affairs, which is essentially, I think, if you look at the history of Russia, particularly in the 19th century, um, but even before that, whenever there is serious internal strife within that country, it is always the Jewish people who have suffered most heavily as far as minorities have gone in that country. Um, numerous pogroms uh, throughout the 19th and 18th centuries, particularly whenever there was, as I say, civil strife, attempted assassinations or successful assassinations of the Tsar were often blamed on Jewish people in that country. And so uh, in wars as well, it's always been that the minorities have been targeted as sort of enemies within. And so I think there is a growing fear amongst the Jewish community in Russia that as pressure as this sort of fascistic state that we've spoken about in the past has been forged in recent months that this will not be a good thing for the Jewish people um, in that country so I think that's one major motivator is this is a historical um, a deep historical understanding of what has happened in in the past in that country amongst that community um, the other I, I suppose is more practical which is simply that of course Russia has been now largely internationally isolated although not completely so um, and I think there are concerns that if the war does escalate in a, in a certain direction, it may well be impossible to leave um, if, if the war were to grow into something even bigger. And so if you are considering leaving, it would seem that now is a more opportun opportune time to do so whilst one is able to do so, um, as opposed to at a, at a time in a future date when it will become potentially impossible. So those would be my two, I think, reading between the lines of what's going on, reasons as to why there has been this max exodus. Well, thank you very much, Francis, for that. Um, Gareth, uh, you've been kept waiting, I think, 20 minutes now. Gareth, you came on uh, our senior tech reporter. You came on Monday to give us a bit of an update on the cyber war situation. Um, then after, almost immediately after, after we logged off on this space, quite a few things happened, um, which ch have changed the game slightly. Can you talk us through them? What, what's been happening this week? Yes. So after we went off air earlier this week, um, or rather while we were still on air uh, earlier this week, I said that the cyber war had calmed down and everything was, was starting to sort of recede to a, a steady level of activity with so-called wiper malware. Uh, after we went off air, the head of the Ukrainian um, cybersecurity agency, a chap called Viktor Zora, uh, gave an interview to The Vice magazine in which he said that Russia was committing cyber war crimes, which was a, a bit of a an eye-opener, and obviously not very well timed for our purposes. <laughs> um, no, on the on the serious note there, what, what Mr. Zora says is that Russia's use of cyber attacks may in fact amount to war crimes under the International Criminal Court's rules. Um, his, his take on this, which I think is, is a body of, of thought which might actually support that, which I'll come on to, his take on this is that if you, say for example, launch a cruise missile at a town hall and you wipe out the local council and as a result civilians are affected or civilians are deliberately targeted, then that is you know, a straightforward war crime under international law as it exists. You, know, you, you cannot target civilians, that's a given. What he says, Mrs. Zora, of the Ukrainian Cybersecurity Agency, is that if a cyber attack has a similar effect, then that itself should be counted as if it was a you know, conventional weapon, bombs, missiles, guns, um, if it leads to an effect on civilians. Now, we know that the Russians have attempted to shut down you know, Ukraine's power grid. The most high-profile one I spoke about on Monday was with the Indestroyer 2 malware, uh, which was a specially targeted piece of malicious software uh, deployed into a Ukrainian power station. 
Uh, now, in this Vice magazine interview, um, Victor Zora actually gives a little more detail about that. He says that one of the the way one of the um, reasons that attack wasn't successful <laughs> was that most of the uh, power company people had actually knocked off for the day and gone home, so they'd switched all their computers off. And of course, you, viruses and malware can't infect a computer that's not powered on. <laughs> um, but he, what he also says is that with these ongoing cyber attacks against Ukrainian infrastructure, against Ukrainian civilian uh, organizations and state institutions, is that by paralyzing them and by deploying this wiper malware, which destroys all files on a particular computer or on a computer network, uh, that these might actually amount to a breach of international law in themselves. Now, I've had a look around, and there actually is a body of thought which supports this. Uh, there's, a, there's some very... Um, interesting comments on a website called the ICC Forum, which is linked to the International Criminal Court, and as well as prominent jurists of the day give their informed views on things. And there is a professor, um, in fact, several professors, but there's a professor of law at the Georg August University of Göttingen in, Germ- in yeah, Germany, uh, Kai Amboss, and he argues that cyber attacks may amount to attacks in the legal sense of the term on the basis of the effects that they have. And what he says is that although the International Criminal Court can currently consider uh, attacks in what the military calls the conventional domain, you know, land, sea, air, and so on, uh, there's currently a, a hole or a loophole, if you will, in the ICC's rules on cyber warfare and how you can adequately prosecute and punish uh, war, war crimes committed exclusively through the internet. So, and there's you know, other professors in, in this uh, site who, who sort of support that view. So, potentially... If the Ukrainian view catches on amongst the West, we could be seeing a move to a unique move, actually, to prosecute the very first cyber or cyber-enabled war crimes. That's absolutely fascinating. I don't know if Francis or Dom want to come in on that at all, um, particularly from a military perspective. Dom, I'd be very curious to see to, to hear your reaction to, to these moves. This issue of of where in cyberspace the line crosses to to be an act of of the military. Um, has long been debated and and whether or not d- does it require the loss of human life to be to, to cross that, that line or is it was it the act itself and of course attribution is is arguably the hardest thing so this has long been long been debated about wh- what is an act of war in cyberspace and and obviously the extension of that is well how does article 5 nato's article 5 um stand up against that if you're if you are attacked and you're a member of nato is that is that does that count if you can you meet an attack in cyberspace with a response in um you know in the real world so it's a an incredibly difficult area to try and work out where international law stands and where uh, where national policy should be for individual countries i mean there is no consensus here uh, it's there's no you can just your anyone's view is as good as anyone else's at at the moment i would suggest i mean some people have have a better idea of, of the of the law but it's all it's all um, utterly to be interpreted for, for the for the cyber realm. So I mean, there is no no um, no answer at the moment. Um, I don't think we need to worry too much about it just yet. And Gareth will know, will know far better than me. But but the, the the chances of of causing mass destruction, this sort of cyber um, the cyber Pearl Harbor, we we hear it referred to as, but you know, switching off all the power to a hospital and so on and so forth. It is. It is pretty hard to do. I can't think of any examples where there's been a, a, a very obvious link from a cyber attack to, to loss of life and certainly not loss of life on, on a great scale. So, yeah, these, these debates are out there. We need to think about them. We need to come up with some sort of answer. Um, but 
but it's, we're not there yet. And of course, getting consensus. I mean, it's hard enough to, to gain consensus in the real world. If you have international law which says you can't go around invading countries and killing people, well, you know, few people tend to ignore that. So it's very, very difficult. It is a, a live debate in military circles about the lines in cyberspace. Um, I would invite people to go and to go and read into it but 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 don't worry you're, you're not missing an answer that's out there somewhere that, that you just haven't seen yet it's just a, a live debate rumbling on with all a lot of very uh, very interesting issues but attribution i think is the is the most is the is the thorniest part to crack even if you do think there's been an attack how do you prove that it came from somewhere and also so attribution and and where you can uh, how do you respond is, is a response in the real world um, a hard military response in the real world is that appropriate after an attack in cyberspace? Now, I don't know. These are all, all to be debated. Um, no firm answers yet, but a very live issue. Well, thanks uh, very much, Dom. Gareth, do you want to come back on that at all? Add anything? And I know I know Francis has got a question for you as well. Sure. Yeah. So, so as as Dom says, this is very much a, a live debate, and there's no one concrete answer either way as yet. Um, in terms of, of cyber attacks leading to deaths, there's been, I think, two incidents on record. One was at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, a group of hackers hacked a hospital and a, a patient who was being transported to that hospital had to be diverted to one several hours away and died in transit. And I believe there was, and this was in Germany, and I believe there was a, a criminal investigation opened into that. But the same sort of questions arose, you know, namely, the hackers have you know, locked up the hospital, but it doesn't necessarily follow that that has caused the death. Was the patient you know, likely to have passed away before getting into hospital, or was her condition such that she may have passed away anyway? You know, lots of thorny and not immediately obvious questions to sort of link that cause and effect and culpability. Uh, the other one, the other death linked to a cyber action, was apparently a baby born in Alabama. Um, who ended up with severe brain injury because of a cyber attack on the hospital, the maternity ward of the hospital where the mother was. And apparently this um, created problems for the medical staff. They were unable to carry out certain tests and so on, which led to the, to the baby's uh, passing away. Now, um, Dom's mentioned this, you know, just now that things like turning off the power to hospitals could possibly maybe fall under the definition of uh an, I, I, excuse me fall under the definition of an international criminal court offense something that the ICC could prosecute um but as i say it is it is still very much an open discussion on this count and i think there's you know while there may be lots of law professors and human rights lawyers who are keen to say that the law should be extended in this area um attribution again comes into one of the, one of the problems i mean the Ukrainians have been very vocal in saying you know, directly these cyber attacks are caused by Russia. These are clearly part of Russia's ongoing campaign to attack Ukraine. Um, but sort of confidently being able to state that, yes, this is Russia. We know this to you know, the criminal standard of proof, you know, beyond reasonable doubt. We can, you can show a judge that there is a chain all the way going from Russian hackers in, I don't know, St. Petersburg or somewhere, all the way to whatever it is in Ukraine that's been shut down. These, that's very difficult. I mean, even in you know, notional peacetime in the last few years, it's been extraordinarily hard for the West as a whole, or Western governments in the Five Eyes Alliance, to confidently state that Russia has been carrying out um, cyber attacks. So, I mean, we, we have had a few attributions, certainly from the UK and the US, and I think the EU as well has chipped in at points. But these things, these attributions, are very much notable for the fact that they happen so rarely, rather than the fact that this is a routine part of business uh, in the West. So, yeah, 
a really thorny topic and all. Well, if if it's, I mean, who else? Who else could it possibly be? If if it's people attacking Ukrainian you know, facilities? Um, well, there's the old debate in cyber about what the division is between a state-sponsored attack, so something carried out by, for example, the GRU and you know, the Russian spy agency who have a multiple hacking units under their command. Or there are the what you might call privateers. So there are sort of loosely affiliated groups who might possibly be acting under the direction of the state. Uh, or there might be just opportunists who, you know, feeling patriotic and decide they're going to help Russia by launching attacks on whatever it is they can get their hands on. But there's also suggestions, I mean, we get into sort of interesting territory here. There's also suggestions of false flags being carried out by countries who are aligned to Russia and Russia's interests. Um, I mean, there are you know, nations such as China, North Korea, Iran, that are typical nations we talk about in that context. And the cybersecurity world is always alert to the possibility of there having been a, an attack made to look like it's come from one party or actually originating from someone, someone else completely different. So the possibility exists, I think, is probably the best way to summarise that one. It's not something we can state for sure, but we can never rule it out in cyber. Thank you very much, uh, Gareth. That was very interesting. Francis, I know you have one question, and then let's move on to talk about these uh, war games in China. I do. Uh, and actually, uh, there are a couple now, just in response to what Gareth was, uh, was saying there. Um, my first one is, I remember several years ago hearing a talk by a very senior politician, I better not say who, who was effectively making now what is a common argument, that we... we cyber will be the new front in our future wars. So, you know, we in the past of developments into... Into the in, into the aerospace, and now we're we're going to be a new one. And he made all of these sort of apocalyptic predictions about what that would mean, and how overnight it would be possible for for a hostile power to turn off energy plants, to sow complete chaos on the internet that would mean that the internet wouldn't function, and so we wouldn't have we'd have complete blackouts. We wouldn't get inf- any information from countries being invaded. And yet we've had the invasion in February and none of that seems to have happened. And so my first sort of question to Gareth is, was that sort of, is that possible? Are we not there yet? Is that still hypothetically possible? Or has what's happened here actually, that because we were aware of this being a possibility, that actually the West and other countries have adapted and have built a far more effective defensive cyber strategy than was previously in place? Thanks, Francis. Yeah, good questions. Um, in terms of the apocalyptic predictions, which I'm sure we're all familiar with from recent years about you know, cyber attacks, um, stopping life as we know it and you know, tr- sending us all back to the Stone Age in a single click of a mouse button. Uh, I think what the experience of the Ukraine war has showed us is that that's simply not true and it's not going to happen anytime soon. In fact, um, previous Ukrainian experience with Russian attempts to do that exact thing didn't get very far. If memory serves, it was 2014 um, and the Russian attack on the Kiev power grid resulted in, fair enough, turning off the city's electricity. However, that power outage lasted for about 90 minutes. So while that was necessarily disruptive, I don't think it was anywhere near the sort of apocalypse-inducing you know, return to the Stone Age that some of the more excitable commentators in the field might have uh, wanted us all to believe there. So there is there is that sort of heartening side to it. I mean, we've, we've, we have here now a full-scale, multi-domain, multi-spectrum war in Ukraine directed by Russia uh, with the intention of utterly exterminating the Ukrainian state. Yet... Several months after this has begun, the Ukrainians are still there. They're still fighting. Their state institutions are still functioning. But that sort of brings me to the second part of your question there, Francis, about the preparations that we've made. 
So the Ukrainians are very reliant on companies such as Microsoft and Amazon through Amazon Web Services, there's a web hosting division, uh, to actually keep all of their national infrastructure online. And when the war started, Microsoft in particular were very, very upfront about having assisted the Ukrainians to essentially shift their entire public sector onto their Azure cloud hosting service. Um, So the idea being that if and when the Russians targeted Ukrainian data centers or communications nodes uh, and the like, that actually those attacks would not wipe out Ukraine's ability to function as an organized state in its own right. Um, The flip side of that one is that then Ukraine becomes reliant on the cloud and all of the, the computer networks of the Internet. And you start to wonder at what point the Russians think to themselves, hmm, maybe we could start targeting this wider infrastructure as a means of taking out the Ukrainians, which would then have a knock-on effect on everybody else. And I think that's one of the threats that Microsoft in particular has been taking quite seriously. We've seen lots of speeches from Brad Smith, their uh, global president, uh, talking about that exact threat that they're facing now from the Russians. Um, But yes, the preparations we've made in the West, I think, have been driven partly by the sort of fear-mongering and the what we call in the in the tech industry, fear, uncertainty and doubt, FUD. Uh, a lot of the FUD has, I think, driven the response, which is not necessarily a bad outcome. Um, certainly in the UK, we have the National Cyber Security Centre. They're pretty good uh, at what they do. Although this week we did see that uh, a water company was, was attacked, we think, by a Russian-linked ransomware gang. Now, you, know, you, you can defend most of the people most of the time, but you can't catch everything. I think you know, using the old IRA saying, you, know, you have to be lucky all the time, we only have to be lucky once. And that's very much the model that the ransomware attackers and, to a large extent, the sort of organized state cyber war units rely on as well. So in summary there, I think, yeah, we've seen a lot of FUD. We've seen a lot of, a lot of hype about the potential of cyber war, which simply has not materialized. But I think that also here in the West, we've done a lot to actually armour ourselves against the threat and sort of have processes and procedures in place. So when these things happen, we're able to respond swiftly and minimise the disruption caused. If I could add just one final point there to, to what Gaz is saying. I mean, that, that idea that, that we are get, get better at defending ourselves because of our experience of cyber attacks. I mean, that, that is absolutely true. And although our um, reliance upon or development of uh, web-enabled services and cyber capabilities and contactless payments and all the rest of it, yada, yada, yada. I mean, that, that does increase the the attack surface, the opportunities that, that um, bad actors have to, to hit us. But have a look at Estonia in 2007 or after 2007. So Estonia 2007, subject to a crippling cyber attack, uh, widely suspected to be from Russia. A um, couple of days of rioting. I mean, it was terrible. I think one person killed. Um, and the, the whole system, the whole country ground to a halt but from that Estonia learnt to uh, rather than go backwards and say right well okay let's go and get the get the pencils out again lads um, they pressed on with connecting their society but protecting it at the same time and Estonia is now world leader in, in cyber defense and how to how to sort of organize society in this brave new world and so I think we we need to look around and, and look for best practice such as um, described by by Estonia and others um, I mean, I was very impressed when when I was in Kiev a couple of weeks ago with with David. I was very impressed to see how how easy it was to operate your contact list and all the rest of it in in Kiev. Not the same all around the country, but then it's not the same in this country either. So it does increase the attack surface, but there is emerging best practice, and enough enough people now know what what to do um, in order to take take sensible steps to protect ourselves in this area as as the as the, the threat emerges and we sort of catch up and get and get ahead of it so it's not all doom and gloom and I, and we don't need to go go back to the stone age um 
just because the you know, cyber activity and uh, and connectivity is, is here to stay. I think we've taken it for granted as well, just quite how significant it is that Ukraine is still online. You know, we've spoken in previous episodes about how important that's been for keeping the engagement with the international community of what's been happening, spreading information that has been vital in keeping morale high, not only within Ukraine, but also keeping the international community on board, as I say. And I think in the future, historians will no doubt comment on that. But as I say, this is just an observation from a non-techie. It just does seem incredible to me that we have so many issues, you know, where it seems that you just need to nudge one wire the wrong way and your broadband's off for a week. And yet it is incredible that we've been what of what we've been seeing on the ground in Ukraine that they've still been able to to have Wi-Fi and still been able to collect to, to connect to mobile phone data. I say I'm not a techie, and it's so interesting hearing Gareth's take on on how that is possible. Um, because, and I, as I say, I, I do feel that it's something that we've we've in a sense taken for granted that that this is just an extraordinary achievement, technological achievement that we've been able to do this, and one that no doubt has had very very significant impact on on the outcome of this war and the shape of the war so far. That does just bring to mind um, <clears throat> the number of times uh, various different Ukrainian officials have thanked Elon Musk and his Starlink satellites for providing them with such good cover and connectivity uh, during the war. Can can we move on from this? Thank you very much for that, Gareth. That was, uh, it's quite fun that we had you on two days after we had you on before, just because there's been so much suddenly going on in your patch. But thank you very much for, for running us through the updates. Um, Francis, I know, I know you wanted to talk about this. There have been some uh, military exercises led by the Chinese with, with Russia, um, can you talk us through what's happening there and, and how much should this worry us? What might, what might this tell us about uh, how, uh, how diplomacy in, in the world during and after the Ukraine war is developing? Well, yes, it's been an ongoing theme and topic of conversation on this podcast about the m- manner in which the diplomatic impact of this war can be measured. And indeed, one of the ways which we were very concerned, we would think back to all of those abstentions uh, in, in the United Nations in condemning the war, there were some rather concerning names on that list, um, India, Pakistan, other emerging economies. And we'd commented then about what perhaps what we were seeing is that the war is making it clearer where the two new blocks are in a sort of future Cold War, perhaps we're even already in one, um, of, of, of those perhaps more leaning towards autocracy and those that are more leaning towards autocracy and that Ukraine has offered this sort of revelation as to where the world actually is on these fundamental issues that we've actually for decades been sort of meandering along and this is actually one of those moments where it leads to powers coming together but also perhaps starting to drift a little bit further apart. Indeed, if you were to believe that article of what's been going on, then you would say that you can see the West here has become much more closely aligned, certainly in Europe anyway, on on, on what is at stake here. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to be aware that, that, that this is having an opposite effect from the, in, in, in the in the sort of alternative block, if I can articulate it in that way, particularly between Russia and China. Now, of course, China have not been as supportive as Russia I think they could have been and I think that's because of their own international situation they don't want to cause too much economic friction that could cause them major problems so they've been trying to if not play both sides not play their allegiance to Russia too strongly um, 
for fear of the international impact of that. And yet, I think it's revealing that behind closed doors, a lot of things are going on that are still offering a lot of support for for Russia, not least this joint military exercise that, that you mentioned, that Beijing have admitted to today. Um, they've claimed that it's unrelated to the current international and regional situation and includes India, Belarus, Mongolia, Tajikistan, and other countries. And they said that it's uh, an exercise from August 30th to September the 5th and saying foreign forces would participate without naming them. The aim being to deepen practical and friendly cooperation with the armies of participating countries, enhance the level of strategic collaboration among the participating parties and strengthen the ability to respond to, to, respond to various security threats. So on the one hand, it's interesting wording saying it's got nothing to do with what's going on internationally around the world. And that's clearly trying to make a, an effort uh, to say, oh, you know, we're, we, we don't want to be seen as being uh, uh, too friendly with Russia. And yet look at that wording there in the second part, which is effectively saying that our allies, in inverted commas, we're doing joint exercises with them um, in the case of some future incident. So we are seeing at the same time China and Russia working more closely together. I think it's fair to say that may well not have been uh, as, as, as much of a concern as it now is since the Ukraine war. And, and I think, again, it just underlines the point that there was a, so much conversation when the war began about how Putin and Russia would become a pariah state, that it would not be possible for any world leader or any senior foreign minister to be shaking hands with Putin or with Russian officials. And yet what we've seen, unfortunately, in recent months is world leaders now willing to meet Russian figures, willing to shake Putin's hand, uh, willing to do these kind of exercises as the world has started to move on. And I think there is uh, this should be a concern to us for all sorts of reasons, um, not least, as I say, this potential unifying of of a new oppositional block towards the Western world. Perhaps we were heading in that direction anyway. Indeed, I'd say I'd argue that historical trends were leaning in that direction anyway. But it's a focusing of this and a sharpening of this in a way that I think should be something that we should be very sensitive to in the months ahead. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Francis. Well, we just wanted to respond to one comment from a listener. So I'll, I'll read it out. And Francis, I don't know if you've got this person's name. I don't have it written down, unfortunately. But this commentator says, quote, British commentators tend to have a blind spot when it comes to events in Europe before 1940, whereas Russians, Ukrainians, Poles and other peoples of Central Europe and Central Asia can remember what drove Russian imperial ambitions in 1700s to 1900s. Um, Nicholas I made a disastrous mis miscalculation in Crimea because he thought that the Western powers could not stand up to the Russians of 1812. Poland was dismembered in the 1790s because it represented a threat to autocracy. Please, would you be able to get into Putin's views of the lessons for, for Russia from the last 300 years? Francis, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about this. Well, yes, thank you very much to, to the listener who, who wrote in and, and asked this question, because I think it's a really relevant point to one of the main central questions of this of, of, that we've posed on this podcast, which is all about Putin's um, uh, mentality, ambitions for, for Ukraine and where that comes from. As in, was it pure uh, imperialism or is it part of a, a sort of... Um, uh, ideological belief that Ukraine is really part of 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 of, of Russia, and I de and I think what this this uh, this question sort of poses quite well in a way in its phrasing is making the point that actually they're not really mutually exclusive points that that. Uh, at the same time as, as, as Russia can sort of claim, lay claim 
to Ukraine and to other countries in its periphery. At the same time, that doesn't mean that it's not operating in an imperialist manner, that it is not, as it did in its past, seizing countries and stripping them of, of their autonomy, both political and economic, and, and committing all sorts of of, of heinous incidents in those countries and I think as I say it just poses a a helpful way of reframing this which is is not one or the other in terms of Putin's motivations but actually it could be something where both things are happening simultaneously that Putin could be sitting in the Kremlin and saying to himself what can I take what how can I become this great Russian leader what's available to me well I can't take all of these countries because they're now in NATO and I'd be starting World War three so I've got Ukraine available to me now I, that's my fine. That's my fundamental impulse: is that I want to, I want to, 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 to seize back territory and become known as this great leader, and that's available to me. So I'm going to strike, um, and then, then he starts thinking about, well, actually, I can justify this to myself. I can say, well, look at my the historical claims to Ukraine. It's not a real country. Lenin invented it. All of these sort of um, historical uh, corruptions. And 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 in a sense, convince himself and not only that, convince his generals and convince those around him. Um, and and then, of course, the, the, the Russian people as to the, valid, the validity of of the invasion. So um, and I, I talked yesterday about the Washington Post article, which seemed to suggest actually with the, the intelligence that had been compiled in that document that a lot of the generals really do seem to believe in this idea that Ukraine and Russia are one country and that Ukraine hasn't got the right to go into the direction of, that it is. And, and so if that is true, then I think we need to be sensitive to that. But we shouldn't say then, therefore, that, every, that, all, that, that, that Russia does have a legitimate claim to Ukraine or any of, anything of that sort, and at the same time dismissing this idea of Putin's Machiavellianism, because I think actually they, are, they can be one and the same thing. That, that imperialism can come from a realpolitik Machiavellian source as much as it can come from some sort of, I don't know, ideological, cultural underpinning. And, and, and I think that, of course, as this, this question very um, well uh, articulates, um, this is a, a long-going trend and one that Central and Eastern European countries are well aware of already. And so it should come as no surprise why the Baltic states and many other Eastern European countries really did believe that Russia was capable of this, whereas other more Western Uh, European powers were more sceptical, Britain aside. Well, thank you very much for that, Francis Stanley, and thank you very much for sending that comment in, uh, listener. Um, Just a reminder to everybody, do feel free to send us questions, comments and critiques. We will find it extremely useful. We do try and read every single one, even if we don't read them out. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I think we're coming to the end of our time uh, today. So Dom and Francis, can I just ask you for your final thoughts? Yeah, well, I think all the focus at the moment has to be on Crimea there does seem to be an element of, I wouldn't say panic, but but certainly a very obvious attention given there. There's a lot of chat in Russian telegram channels about what's going on in Crimea, uh, blaming it either on partisans or or um, or on other ballistic missiles. Whatever. Although there's no evidence for, for, for any of that at the moment. We speculated yesterday about what might be going on. But I mean, it, it, it has, as we as we expected, there's no hiding what's happening in Crimea because it's it's Russian citizens flocking out. I think 35,000 cars got over the bridge yesterday um, to back into Russia. And, and so th- th- there will be flooding the social media channels. This is increasingly hard slash impossible for Putin to, to hide under the special military operation banner any longer. This is out there. There's, like I said, there's chat in the Telegram channels. I mean, a few more attacks on Crimea, um, 
by Ukraine or lucky ammunition accidents, cigarette butts and all the rest of it. And I think there could be there, there could be a real it could it could boil up to a to real head of steam there. Um, so that would be very, very interesting to watch there and, and see what. And as I said yesterday, we still haven't had any kind of real official explanation from from Moscow for this. And they they are increasingly unable to ignore it because there's enough chat going on in in their own in society at the moment in Russia. So, yeah, just keep an eye on on Crimea and the narrative coming out of Moscow. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Francis, would you like the final word? Well, I'll give our final my final word to to a listener, um, if I may, which is uh, building on what I was saying before about uh, the how certain Eastern European countries have been much more sensitive to what's been going on in Russia, perhaps, than, than, than other uh, world powers. And we had a, a very interesting uh, message from a, a listener talking about essentially Poland's reliability. They've, they've been offering military support. They've, of course, taken in millions of refugees. And, and yet, at the same time, this hasn't really been commented on, perhaps, enough. And not only that, there's actually been considerable tensions that have continued within uh, the European Union towards Poland. And I I won't go into all of the the details about that. It's about um, um, sort of uh, legal issues, um, sort of um, issues around free speech and things like that. But it just speaks, I think, to the fact that there are these tensions within Europe. And you sort of feel that, that there really needs to be a more cohesive sense of perhaps now is not the time for countries such as Poland to be being punished within the European Union uh, when at the same time it is facing what I would argue is a sort of existential threat as to its future direction of travel. And I think it just speaks to the, the sort of fragmentary nature of how the, the European Union operates bureaucratically and, and in terms of centralised decisions that are made from the top, because it can have this this, this sort of on the one hand, you can have situations where a country is being supported and praised. And yet, on the other hand, another branch of the of the operation is sort of criticising them. And the problem is, you see, is that that sows discontent within those countries. Reading between the lines, reading some analysis of Poland this week, I think there's a lot of anger towards the European Union and other Western powers, that they feel that they've been done an enormous amount. And that's not only not being recognised, but they are still facing similar um, critiques, criticisms from 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 within the European Union, and I just think that this is again something that Putin will play on. And whilst I'm not saying that that that, that it's necessarily wrong not to take to, to to challenge Poland on on certain things, my point is is that if this benefits Putin, we should be doing it in a more sensitive way than we are, because when you've got countries that are talking about this openly and, and showing that they're, they're they're unhappy and and these tensions become more to the fore, then that as I say, is is not necessarily something that is good at this moment. And so I think it's just something that we that we should be sensitive to. Ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first thirty days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk we do read every message 
and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.